0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour, broadcasting live from Feast, Portland, I'm Dana Cowan and before we kick things off, I want to thank Travel Portland, Stream PDX and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage of Feast possible. Right now, I'm joined by two extraordinary women um, who have so much in common but they've never met. So I'm very excited to like be here on your sort of, you know, first date if you will. Um <laughs> <laughs> Emma Begston is the executive chef at Aquavit in New York City and Kristen Murray is the chef owner of Maurice and I am lucky in that though you guys don't know each other I know your food and I had the pleasure I'm doing Radio Verite I decided so anytime I'm talking to someone I want to have actually had their food which was great because I started my day Kristen with um, your food at Maurice and I um, it put me on a sugar high all day. <laughs> <laughs> I started with angel food cake with some poppy seeds, a lemon, um, a lemon cloud, souffle pudding cake, yeah. Yeah, a lemon souffle pudding cake. Amazing. <laughs> so um, now the two of you live on different coasts. But one of the things that you have in common is that you cook Scandinavian. You're influenced by Scandinavia to one degree or another and i'm curious you both worked at aquavit right so um but did you overlap at aquavit
2: no many moons apart yeah almost a decade
3: i think so around that
2: yeah
1: oh this is gonna be easy (laughs) because you can tell that one person has an accent and the other doesn't so the first (laughs) person who answered was kristen yeah and the second person who answered was emma so um let's just talk about where your inspiration for cooking came from I gonna. it's one of your commonalities because you both had extraordinary grandmothers from what I can tell so Emma do you want to talk about growing up in a fishing village in
3: Sweden and um, the cooking culture that you grew up with sure um, I grew up on the west coast of Sweden and my grandmother lived uh, in the south both my mom and my grandmother were amazing uh, home cooks and getting the opportunity to have Uh, the ingredients and the seafood and everything the the, the land has to offer is so close I think I grew up very spoiled like not really knowing about it getting everything fresh everything from the market everything nothing was half produced or bought in a can so without even knowing it I think that influenced me in the way I cook today and the way I don't wanna ruin the ingredients in a way I always want to highlight what it is and and take the best out of it instead of turning it into something that might be extraordinary in certain restaurants but it's not my culinary philosophy to see on food I want to see what it is I want to know what it is and taste what it actually is and Kristen I think is going to concur 100% yeah yeah
2: no it's true I mean kind of for me it it was being raised by my grandmother and my great-aunt but In California um, everything was so fresh and uh, I was sort of the odd kid that had the avocado Munster butter lettuce sandwich with homemade persimmon walnut cookies yeah I didn't realize how unique and special that was Um, and my style of cooking is very similar to exactly what you said It, it could be defined by your exact words it's fresh it's reflective of the ingredient it's celebrating kind of trying to layer that versus masking it with too much butter, although I'm sorry I made you sugar high. <laughs> you know, well, it's um. only because I ate. I mean, sugar to be fair, had I eaten. Well, I had, eaten, three. <laughs> well, I had five. Oh. So
1: to be fair, had I only had one um, breakfast, that would have been great. But I took the sampling approach and got sort of one of everything Which and is great. and that is what <laughs> yeah.
2: affected me so tremendously. So don't feel it was that your Good. food had too much sugar Good. in it. But it's usually really I balanced. joke and say that it's like spa food to save room for dessert at the shop.
1: <laughs> Do you have moments in your memories of being taught something specific, like that memory where you're like, oh, I, you know, this, this is what it is. This is what cooking is. This is what being intimate with food or my grandmother or anything like that that.
2: Yeah, um, Lefsa, uh, when I was six, my, uh, my great-grandma Nora taught me how to make it. And just um, it's so simple, but the warm, flat potato um, potatoesque crepe flatbread with just a little bit of butter and sugar rolled is it every time I make it, it brings me back to being a little girl in the kitchen. And it's so simple and so good and so satisfying. And seeing Scandinavians come in and see us making it or have it on the menu, they get kind of smelty and excited. Um, I don't serve it the way I was first given it because I couldn't keep up with making that many. So I end up using it more like an open face um, wrap for the Norwegian meatballs or um gravlax. but yeah i would say lefsa is is kind of the the thing i always
3: come back to and it and it's very special i never really got the opportunity to cook a long song no my, my grandmother that much but she did always send me her recipes and uh, i kind of had to figure out a trial and error myself uh, at the kitchen at home too That's much interesting.
1: So, were you s- trying to channel her because you knew what it was what it should taste like?
3: Yes, I mean, she always cooked it when I when we came to visit, and uh, I was always allowed in the kitchen with her. But she was always super organized and ahead of time with everything. So, I think in a way, I might have been a little bit more in the way than helping. <laughs> so, it was kind of a, I think, I would taste it and I would look and I would see what she was doing and then when I returned back home I would go crazy myself in the kitchen making a mess and (laughs) and figuring out like how to perfect different things Uh, uh, much to despair of my parents cleaning up after me but (laughs) so it was more about that situation for me. It's good that they cleaned up after you because
1: some people would be like yeah sorry Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, another thing that you have in common is that you both started in pastry and have gone to savory or do both i mean not gone to but incorporated both which i think is such an interesting journey because it's the reverse of so many things um how did that how did that happen how were you attracted to pastry first um i know you both have tremendous great restaurant experience doing pastry and then how did it happen that you moved over and did both
3: so I, I, w- I went to school for all, all of things, uh, culinary, front of the house, back of the house, uh, everything was included, and I actually wanted to be uh, a savory cook uh, coming out of school, but unfortunately and fortunately, I ended up with uh, th- my first internship, uh, the pastry chef uh, needed help, so I stayed with him for three months, and then he turned out to be leaving the restaurant, so I stuck around. And that turned into five years. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually had the intention of being savory. But then I went into pastry and I turned to love that profession. And the, that's a different way of thinking. And, and you can tell between pastry and savory cooks that the difference is <laughs> very, very big. How um, can you tell? Organization most of the times and you want to keep your things neat you work clean not saying that savory doesn't but there's just when you when it's different when you're in the field you can definitely see who's been pastry trained and who hasn't there's there's definitely something that stands out between it and it just fit me really well um so i
1: how did why did it take you well Um, were you happy spending five years doing pastry or did you feel during that time you had sort of been derailed from your you know um, direction
3: I never thought about it and it just everything fits so perfectly and and back home in Sweden as well when you do pastry you're also in charge of the starters so I I would still be able to do it was a different kind of technique so I think that's why pastry and starters are a little bit combined because the technique we were using in pastry we were also using in our first courses so I did that and then after that I moved on to only doing pastry for another ten years and that's when I lost my savory a little bit so um, yeah and I was happy with it and you also started um, pastry
1: you're doing a ton of pastry now but doing both
2: yeah but it's interesting again (laughs) kind of mirroring which is eerie um so I went to school I studied all the things um I actually didn't want to be a girl in a bakery I if if I was going to do anything pastry I wanted to be learning bread um but uh I I was doing an internship at a Laurent Deli restaurant in San Francisco and Again, much like you're saying, I would help with garmanger and the pastry chef. And the pastry chef ended up leaving one night in the middle of service. It was very dramatic. Oh, my goodness. And um, What had happened? Oh, she and the chef got in a fight, which happens. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and he threw me the key at the end of the night. And I had made brioche with her before everything hit the fan. And um, I had to come back at 3 a.m. to retard the dough. And it was huge and amazing trial-by-fire experience um, but that was my first pastry cook slash pastry chef job and working for a Laurent Deli really um, kind of made a lot of things concrete um, his restaurants no longer around but uh, it was the best um, for changing things and I'll never forget when I made the transition um, from cooking to pastry and the brulees were in the oven. The chocolate was seating and kind of sitting and waiting. And the brioche was rising. It felt like this beautiful orchestra where all of a sudden it wasn't being a cowboy and having my guns loaded waiting mm-hmm. for <laughs> everyone to sit. <laughs> and it, it, it made sense with my personality. I could plan and organize and look forward to things. And, and I stuck with it and still stick with it, but the way I approach my cooking is reflective and thoughtful how I do the pastry, as far as temperature, texture, timing, Um, yeah. So, you, um,
1: when you opened your own restaurant, Mm -hmm. Maurice, that's when you united the two sides, like you brought back the past, which was the savory that he had been doing, but also doing extraordinary um, pastry as well. So, Because you could have just opened a pastry shop. You're known for that. I mean, the whole city of Portland knows you for that. (laughs) Uh, But they obviously were happy to try something new.
2: But why did you open um, a full-on restaurant? Um, I, I had been dreaming about Maurice for 12 years. and it just became more and more focused over the years and originally i i was going to open it back east because that's where i was for a very long time new york and then boston um and i fell in love with maine and so maine seemed like maybe that's where i should do it but it 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 was moving toward new england and um i helped family out and was on the west coast again and um i was uh, and i got a job offer to come to portland and um after being here and meeting the farmers and meeting the community and it is very it's easier living here i would Mm say um and it's closer to family Mm -hmm. portland made sense to open more recent um and i didn't really overthink it because it had been so focused in my mind for over a decade Um, and I was overqualified as a pastry chef Mm -hmm. at that time, but I really wanted to stay in Portland. So it was kind of, um, a dare against Portland to open Maurice. Wow. And if it didn't, um, swim, then I would leave and go back to where I was having a healthy career and life and had another community. And it's been so sweet to see it be embraced because it's quirky and it doesn't really make sense, but, um, it works. I love that it was a dare. Yeah. <laughs> had,
1: like, how do you think about that? Like, it was just the the dare was,
2: will you accept me? Yeah, because I loved Portland and the, and I still love it, clearly. But, um, but I was mad at it because I had worked really hard on my career and it just wouldn't take all my experience until I had to create my own space in it. I I read a a 2012 a 2011 interview with
1: you and you described Maurice like it was amazing. <laughs> um because it was so clear and it was recorded, you know. How I mean funny. you could go back and and read it it's, it's exactly what you've ended up huh. doing but in 2011.
2: Interesting. So when you mm-hmm. say that yeah it've been around even longer because you it just kept the, getting the more the focused dream. over yeah. the years. And so my friends were really funny after it opened. They're like, oh, good. Now what else can we hear about? What, <laughs> what, what, what next? Uh, yeah. And and for you, um,
1: I th- the, you know, the story of being offered the executive chef job, and you're like, mm, yeah, I don't think so. Um, why was your initial reaction to say, no, I'm not, I don't really want that job? Or is that misreported and it didn't quite happen that way?
3: No, it, it did. It did, and I think most of it was because I've worked, I worked so hard uh, as a pastry chef, and I put in so much, so many hours, and and so much thought, and I finally got my pastry department to be exactly where I wanted it to be, and mm-hmm. it was like the first time I could actually take a breath and go like, maybe I can take this Saturday off. And I would just be like, I can do this. Like, everything just was on point. And then I was like, oh, man, I'm going to go back to this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. But, um, yeah, it, it started as a, 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 a trial. I, I started figuring things out with the help of my my chefs or my cooks, who were s- some of them still with me today. And, and little by little, day by day, everything Worked itself out and.
1: It doesn't sound like yeah. it was resolved before the chef left, the executive chef.
3: No, so I, I came on board after he left. So.
1: But you had already been doing pastry there, no?
3: Yes, I was the pastry chef right. for, for four years. Right,
1: that's what uh. I thought. Yeah, it's very interesting. And um, the restaurant had gotten a Michelin star.
3: Yes, we got one. A year after I came. So 2011, if I remember correctly.
1: 2011 That's is exciting. very important. Okay. <laughs> it's an important year. And I think 2014, weirdly, for both of you, is also an important year. Because you opened at the very end of 2013, okay. December. So I'm calling it 2014. And yeah. your um, executive, uh, I was going to say editor, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> the executive <laughs> chef role was 2014. So you both had these cataclysmic changes in 2014, which yeah. I just thought was, as I was doing your... Um, <laughs> I'm like, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. And now you've both had about four years of, you know, following, um, I don't know if you're. it's your dream. In your case, Kristen, I feel like it's really, it's your dream. And part of everything that I had read about the restaurant in advance was what was really a fantasy.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: <laughs> I went in and I was like, I don't, I mean, it doesn't feel completely fantastical. I mean, except for like the, the just little rabbits heads at the right. um you know edge of the seats and yeah. there's a beautiful um string of what's on those little strings at the top of your
2: ceiling oh i got this kooky idea to do these really lovely um garlands seasonally and so they have cotton always because cotton is arduous to pick like pastry is to make um oh they're metaphorical they garlands are, of course they are um rose hips for scandinavia um bay leaves for california um, and then whatever else is in season and will dry nicely. <laughs> and do you make those yourself? Um, actually, Hilary Horvath, my florist, and I do them together. So she actually drills holes in each of those things and strings them, and then I hang them and space them out. And so it's. Um, Remodelista did a really nice piece on them. But it's it, it's been interesting trying to wrestle with them and being in sort of a glass fishbowl at times and having people come up to the glass and watch you when you're mm-hmm. just cursing <laughs> at these things I'm like no no look away please. <laughs> keep, keep going so but yeah, it's a but bit they're great they're sweet and they are whimsical
1: whimsical and there's a little bit of a a, fa- a fantasy um
2: were you intending a fantasy again i sometimes i just kind of do things and i don't overthink them and then and then it happens and it and i'm happy i did it so um no like but like maurice the
1: notion that you have yeah. a restaurant named after a um pet stuffed rabbit live mm. rabbit
2: live <gasps> yeah live, yeah maurice was a french lop that i named after maurice chevalier and so oh. i'm um No offense to strange cat ladies, but I never wanted to be a strange bunny lady, Um, Mm -hmm. but I know I now have a restaurant named after my pet, but the reason being is because Mm -hmm. he was a really great mascot. He was with me for 12 years. I treated him like a dog-child companion and took him on the subway in New York and to Central Park and camping with me. I just didn't think about him as a bunny and so when I was thinking about the business I wanted it to be like my mascot that would be positive and be around and Maurice kept coming to my head and he's not around anymore but um, the memory and the feeling that he gave is and that's what I want my business to give people so it's named after him (laughs) how did you choose a bunny I didn't. Um, I was engaged in a past life in New York and he was not into cats and he thought a rabbit would be a good fix. So the rabbit stayed and he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And when you took the rabbit about, did he have a rabbit cage? No, I put him in a vintage um, picnic basket and would invert it over him to protect him in Central Park and... Did he have a leash? He would had a leash, yes. Not did, when we would go camping. Did you get a lot of stares? There was a lot of conversation, mm. yeah. People were always very curious, and he was a big bunny. He was a big bunny. <laughs> he was about nine pounds. So, yeah. I wow. feel bad now that I thought it was stuffed, but oh, on that's the other okay. hand. No, yeah. I mean, it's...
1: Yeah, we grew up... I, so I grew up in Manhattan in an apartment, <laughs> and we had um, a rabbit, a turtle, and a chicken
3: chicken. Wow.
1: Yes. In a New York apartment. I still can't believe that the chicken thing is true. But um, apparently and the chicken like landed on my father was bald. And the <laughs> chicken landed on my father's bald head and like sat there. And um, that was the end of the chicken. So we took the chicken. I mean, it didn't die or anything. We didn't wring its neck. But um, we brought it to the zoo. And I don't really know what happened when it got to the zoo. I just know that that was the end of us having chicken
2: right at home yeah well Maurice was actually my second rabbit my first rabbit was when I was a child and I didn't remember this memory for a long time until um, family and I were talking about it but his name was Harvey after the Jimmy Stewart movie and he was quite affectionate with our cat and um, that didn't really go over well and so one day my grandfather took Harvey to a mating farm. And I still don't know what that means, nor where Harvey went to. See,
1: <laughs> my chicken and your first rabbit are, are together somewhere. somewhere. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about fantasy. Mm-hmm. So he was real, <laughs> actually. He yes. wasn't a fantasy. No. and um, But you were trying to create...
2: It was more the feeling the that... Feeling. that that I wanted about. the restaurant to provide to customers, and um, and it feels good when people come in because they leave happy. They seem it seems like a peaceful space that doesn't feel like a restaurant unless it's a very busy lunch hour. Then of course it does. Um, but it was confusing when I opened because people were looking for cupcakes and chocolate chip cookies and why are the walls white and when are you going to finish and put artwork up i mean there was lots of funny conversation and it was just would you like a pot of tea (laughs) would you like a butter cookie the
1: you have a couple of confusing things very Um, yeah right so um, (laughs) the you use the word um fika Mm -hmm. which means coffee break Mm -hmm. but you really have great teas Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. And fika <laughs> is a Swedish word, but really your heritage is Norwegian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> so I'm just wondering. I
2: don't make it easy. Uh-huh. Um, Why is that? I don't know. That would be like the golden ticket question. Answer. Answer. Really not question. Yeah. I don't know. No because thoughts. it's um, challenge makes you grow and, and think. And I don't know just um i feel like there are lots of restaurants that are sort of stamps and brands of the same thing you have your meat your chicken your burger your you have the predictable characters and um i don't think there's anything wrong with maybe creating something that's a little more curious and interesting just because it doesn't make sense maybe it doesn't have to make sense i think it's lovely to have something in this world that doesn't make sense i mean when
1: you you know you you as you say I think about things that are branded and branding and it's it's such a profession you know and there's such a route to take and you consider this and you consider that and everything has to align and it's clever and it's funny and right. you know it also sticks you in a very specific moment in time you're not stuck in a moment in time and you're not really either stuck in a moment in time which is an incredible thing about Aquavit so you went there in 2014 and I, I wonder what type of pressure you felt to maintain and then grow um, there's Michelin that Michelin star from one to two was that on your mind or
3: from the beginning the only thing on my mind and everyone's mind was to keep the one star that we we got a couple of years ago so during that summer that was everything I think I came on board around Easter period and those couple of months in the summer and, and leading up to fall was purely focus on changing the menu as as fast as possible without making too big of a difference because aquavit is also one of those restaurants we have a lot of returning customers Mm -hmm. a lot of um, people who expect a a certain thing and you can't just turn a restaurant like that upside down overnight so it has to be very gradually moving uh, dishes out and moving dishes in that would fit more uh, uh, my style of cooking so it was um it was a hard hard couple of months and I know everyone was super nervous when we were waiting for the call so moving up to to two stars from there was um, it was not anything that n- we expected to hear so. and what do you think
1: was the difference between the? Because you were present for both. I mean, you created one, and you were you know doing pastry, doing the other. What is the difference in your mind between the one star you had and the two star that um, you were able to achieve?
3: It's so hard to say. Uh, you never really know exactly what. But inside yourself, through. I mean, inside I myself, I don't
1: really care about the Michelin Guide too much. But you know, like inside yourself, do you feel like there's something that you did that pushed the the food? The um, I mean some part of it
3: forward in a way mm, I don't know I think a um, part of it was just me taking what I knew from pastry and, and turning that into uh, savory versions and, and what's an example of that so I use a lot of like techniques like the gil- setting gilets and panna and barroas and ice creams and things like that in in my savory kitchen nowadays and which is always super fun to see the cooks trying to like spread <laughs> s- certain things uh which is a nightmare sometimes but they, they <laughs> get a hang of it <laughs> but um so it, it it's fun to to start mixing those two worlds and at the same time i also started mixing the, the things I started picking up in the savory, I started to move back into pastry and I still didn't give up my pastry chef position for the almost three years. Oh, mm. uh, I did not realize that. Wow. So I still manage both uh, departments for a very long time. So it, it, was, it was fun to overlap everything and, and also I move my cooks around anytime they want they go into pastry and they they stay there for a while and then they can come back in again so you get that all round feeling that everything has to be connected because there's so many restaurants I feel out there that focus either so much on their first and second courses and then desserts is just half an afterthought Mm -hmm. or they have the most brilliant pastry chef but the kitchen is not really following along so being able to create overall in general a whole menu that actually makes sense because you're overlooking every aspect of it you can see it in a different way So I think that and like just constantly pushing for new things and new ideas I think that's what was the difference
1: so when you listen to Kristen describe you know she had this idea in her head for 10 years and she you know willed it in into being and it was a dare um, and you are cooking extraordinary food in someone else's restaurant. That, that is yours, of course, because it's your food and people identify. You're, you're sort of one in the same identified that way. But it's someone else's shell. Um, do you listen to that story and say, oh my gosh, there's a, there's something that I've been harboring and in it. It, it's inspiring to me? Or you are you doing exactly the food you would want to do? So you're doing it in this setting, that is Aquavit, but you would pretty much you're doing your dream food
3: that's a little bit of a yes and a no to that question i think everyone has a dream that they want to fulfill but there are paths along the way that you have i feel like i have to follow and i'm still learning i'm still growing so be able to have a power restaurant like aquavit standing behind me and and pushing me in the right direction and and giving me the courage to go along the way i i find that as as challenging enough and I, I do get every benefit I can no one really tells me what to do and what right. I can't do so I do have free range to create the cuisine and the food that I want so
1: I think that the the difference that I would hear is the difference of um creating your your setting right because you created Kristen has created her setting which is very personal and very very special um and very much part of the experience and your food is very personal it's coming from your family those recipes are translated through your all of your tremendous experience and then end up on the plate but you're you're not controlling I mean you, you probably control service you know the the style of service but there's still elements that you know you don't get to control and I feel like the, the way that the restaurant world is moving forward is uh, you know towards a more personal um, partly I mean it, yeah. it's,
3: it's bifurcated
1: the, the personal and the not
3: but sometimes that's a really sometimes i feel thank god i'm not because to be that person who are in charge of a whole restaurant you have to think about everything It's and then also be able to actually be in the kitchen which i know you managed to do <laughs>
2: but it's tough i mean but because it's,
3: it's really tough it's i mean all of all of
2: those fun you know cottony powdery things it's still a business it still has to Exist, pay the bills, pay the staff, have the extra in case the fridge goes out. Or there's a riot downtown and I need to pay everyone because they can't come in. Or I mean, there's just, there's weird stuff that happens that I miss the security sometimes of working for someone that is so supportive, that is your cheerleader. And you get to go in and be a rock star mm-hmm. and know that if you show up and you push, you have that... Security, which sometimes isn't always the security that you think it is. Um, I mean, they both have good and bad.
3: Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a little bit of both.
1: And um, so if you were going to, I just want to do like a mental s- swap <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> um, so the, because your backgrounds are, are so similar, like if you were going to come to Portland, can you imagine, can you even imagine what you would do with food here?
3: We're talking about moving here and opening it or something? Um,
1: This is a fun little game.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, I would probably situate myself outside of the city um, and uh, build something up with a connection to all the amazing farms uh, that are around here and uh, create a little bit of a a luxury away from from home, where you can... uh, um, Turn up and eat incredible food and, and breathe fresh air and, and get all, the, all the, the grace from that, and then return to the city after you got a little bit of peace and quiet.
1: Have you been to Magnus's, um, Magnus Nilsson's restaurant?
3: No, I haven't.
1: That's quite far. I mean, that's not a short trip. Mm-hmm. And um, in Sweden, for those of you who don't know. And what about you? Go back to New York? What would you do in New
2: York? um gosh have a little sweet railroad hole in the wall that served quiche cheesecake and then on the back end oysters and muscadet at night
1: okay come (laughs) (laughs) so both of them seem like we should actually just those four things (laughs) and good tea and good tea um and because Mm -hmm. you've never met i want each of you to ask the other a question, and I'm just going to be quiet. What do you want to know about each other?
3: Wow. Uh.
2: <laughs> a lot, but I mean.
3: Just ask one thing. That's a big, big question. Um. Ah, I have one.
2: Um, what is your favorite fish that is in the States but is similar to what you grew up with? And how do you cook it?
3: Oh, that's easy. <laughs> oh, dang <laughs> it. <laughs> um, my favorite fish has always been salmon. Okay. Uh, growing up in, in Falkenberg, s- it's actually our, uh, our stream that goes through it as salmon fishing. So I grew up fishing um, salmon as a kid. And uh, the best way that I, I love to cook it is uh, my mom always used to uh, wrap it in foil. And put herbs and uh, lemon salt and pepper close it up and then put it in the charcoal and the grill and and leave it there for a little while till it was ready um, so that's definitely uh, one of my f- favorite things to cook and eat uh, yes. of course Wow um, <laughs> so th- I think what I'm most curious about is um, y- a little bit about your time dating back to aquavit Mm -hmm. back in the days and there's actually like thousands of questions when it comes to that but i wanted to know what your favorite thing about working at aquavit was what what made you stay there for for such a long period um marcus
2: he had such lovely energy so, um,
1: Kristen worked with Marcus Samuelson. Yeah. Um, at when he was at Aquavit.
2: Yeah. And um, it was so challenging. It was, I, I met Marcus because I was working at Gramercy Tavern. And, um, with Claudia Fleming, with who made my um, wedding cakes, yeah, just to say. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, but Claudia, as you probably know, would go and have time in the summer with Pierre Hermé and do little intensives. And so I was helping to cover and do Share Our Strength dinner, and that's where I met Marcus. And he liked how I worked, and asked if I would come and talk with him at Aquavite. And he just, and um, he had this really lovely way about him where there was energy, there was excitement. He was the best cheerleader. He would push me. Um, it would, it, it's where I created a lot of recipes. I mean, my my black pepper cheesecake I created there, and. You've taken it everywhere with everywhere. you. Everywhere, and it's I like can't like, not. Every, every, it's always... <laughs> it's like a well, suitcase. Are you sir- it's true. <laughs> it's true. That's my luggage, but yeah. it's a good luggage to have. Yeah. But that recipe started with us trying to figure it out for some crazy trout taco that he... Or herring taco <laughs> that he wanted. And he was oh always... Yeah, he still
1: makes a herring taco. He was
2: always playing with sweet and savory, and so that was kind of a fun thing to explore with him. And And he was hilarious if I would make something I was really proud of. He would I'd turn my back on the plating because I I'm sure it was very different when you were there, um, but there was a rotating staff that would come in from Sweden that was my staff. So I really didn't have a solid pastry staff. Oh so it was an incredibly intense training and pastry was the first place where they would go in the kitchen. Mm. And then they would move on and so you always felt like you were going up that hill, giving all the tools and then Okay, let's learn how to go up the hill. Give mm-hmm. you all the tools, and um, but it was it was a great challenge and it was great fun. But um, there was another combination flavor combination that he gave me in that time, and it was a chocolate cake that I had made with um, an espresso sabayon, and I think a pomegranate sorbet and some sort of jelly, and um, or maybe it didn't have the espresso, but it had the the pomegranate and cardamom or something. And all of a sudden he he added espresso into the sauce and started mixing it and then was putting it on the plate and was like, here, taste this. And it was such a beautiful combination. And so that sort of marriage and partnership with him as a chef um, was great. And it's, it's hard when you are a pastry cook and you give so much energy and time and you are kind of that last leg, you know? And as you said, it's either you shine and you're the star it's very rare to get that beautiful circle between the food and the pastry, and, and that was the most fun. Um, and, it, uh, and I really just left Aquavit because I had family stuff that I had to tend to, so it may have been very different had I stayed, you know, but, um, but I cherish that time. And if you hadn't left, then you wouldn't have come.
1: I right. mean, not, conti- <laughs> not continuously, and then yeah. we all wouldn't be here together, <laughs> and that would make me sad. So, um, okay, a, a final question. Is there a woman in the industry who you admire, um, who's a role model, who you'd like to
2: pay it forward and talk about on the show? Uh, may we. Dominique hmm. Kren, That's We're doing the dinner with her tomorrow night, yeah. I just I'm inspired by her humanitarian ways and her food and the way she talks and supports her team. She seems like a really good human and great energy. And um, I think it's important to just remember it's not just about the food. It's about the people that supply the food that actually do their time to be in between preparing and serving and enjoy it as well on the other end, you know, She's a big role model. Great.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say the same. <laughs> oh boy, because you are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, she's always been there, and I, I love everything she stands for and everything she does, and and it's just it's more about cooking. But she's also there as almost my goal in life. She's the one I I feel like I need to catch up to. Like she's. She's the person that I would love to be or become. So it's always that little, like... um, What is the difference between where she is and where you are? I feel like the way she uh, gets her voice uh, heard and out, like she's put down so much that i haven't really got the chance to get to yet so she's finally at that point in her career in her life where she has a powerful enough voice to make changes and people will listen to her and i think when it comes to cooking nowadays it's not just about the food it's also about making a change when it comes to the the climate control the farmers uh the gender equality any everything like that is it's very important, and for me, it, it you have to get to a certain level to be able to make that happen. I'm, I'm, and I think she is one of those people that when she says something, people follow and they listen, and I find that very inspirational to be able to to be that person. You know. I, d- I would just say to
1: that that um, there's a woman who I had on my podcast who said um, I am but I am just one voice but I am one Mm -hmm. and the you know the lesson there is you have a tremendous voice and each one of us can be heard you just have to say what you want to say and share it and it will be heard because if you and I'm not saying you don't but you should have confidence in um, in sharing and having your voice heard. You don't need to be Dominique Cren. <laughs> Dominique Cren can you know maybe she has a greater wi- radio signal you know like it might, but um, but you you are so well respected and and so heard both of you so well respected and loved in your thank um, you thank you in what you do. So with that, I just want to thank you guys both. It was so much fun. I've never done a double (laughs) interview before. I haven't done a double date, triple date with me. Um, So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to thank um, the engineer today, uh, Aaron Parecki, who's the co-founder of Stream PDX. And we're in his amazing Airstream. It's super cool. I'm playing with plastic toys here. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying that. Um, I have a zebra that I quite like. You like the zebra? Mm -hmm. I have a bat. (laughs) I'm holding on to a bat, um, and it's white with a little black face. It's really Mm -hmm. cute. Um, And also, I want to thank Travel Portland and the Julia Child Foundation for making uh, our coverage of Feast possible and Team Heritage here, which is really great. And thank you guys for coming out and being part of um, Feast and Heritage. Thank you. Thank you.